Philly, you are so wonderful and interesting. You deserve a local news podcast all your own. Check out the John Cast on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in Depth. I'm Brian Seltzer. There's a new show on HBO called Winning Time. It's got an award-winning cast, an award-winning crew, and it's about the rise of the Los Angeles Lakers dynasty in the 1980s. Now, the coach responsible for helping launch the Lakers title run is a local guy named Paul Westhead. He's got Philly hoops in his DNA. He played at West Catholic at St. Joe's, coached at Cheltenham High School in the South before heading out to Hollywood. In the HBO show, Westhead is played by Jason Siegel. Yes, the forgetting Sarah Marshall Jason Siegel. But in L.A., Westhead's journey was really just beginning. We spoke recently about his thoughts on winning time, the lessons he learned throughout a terrific career in coaching, and how wherever he's gone, he's always managed to keep a little bit of Philadelphia with him. How in the heck did someone who got his start at Cheltenham High School end up in the midst of Showtime? Yeah, that's an interesting journey, uh, Brian. Uh, you know, I was a high school coach at Cheltenham High. Uh, very happy. I, I, I loved my time there. I was there five years uh, had a good team, uh, highlighted by Craig Littlepage, who then went to University of Pennsylvania. So, you know, I was a happy camper, and I got a call from Jack McKinney, my friend from St. Joe's, and offered me a job to be his assistant at St. Joe's. I did that, then went to LaSalle as a head coach for nine years, and then all of a sudden McKinney called again and said, do you want to come to the Lakers? And I said, yes. So uh, it was that simple, but the good good favor of Jack McKinney bringing me along. One of the reasons why I wanted to reach out to you is because obviously the story of the Lakers and that dynasty that you helped build is something that has endured through sports and has always been an area of intrigue for people. But HBO's come out with this new show, Winning Time, which as a fan of the NBA, I felt like I had to see, but also knowing your background and then seeing that you were going to be a quote-unquote character portrayed in it. Have you seen any of the show yet? I have. I saw the first two uh in the series, I, I find it intriguing because many of the events, uh, in fact, all of the events that have happened so far, I wasn't there. I was still back in Philadelphia at LaSalle, you know, enjoying the uh, cheesesteak. But it's coming. Uh, I can see when when Jerry West says, I don't, I'm not going to be the coach next year, then the pursuit of a new coach and uh, a new season uh, is about to happen. Based on how you've seen the show go so far, do you have trepidation about how you're going to be portrayed? What do you think? <laughs> well, uh, I have mixed feelings. Uh, one, because they're kind of uh, killing almost everybody else. <laughs> like, uh, so I don't know how they're going to portray me. But, but I know if the series goes long enough, it won't turn out well for me. <laughs> <laughs> because eventually I get fired and eventually I you know, kind of get run out of town. So I don't know how far this first segment is going to take us. But in year one, we did pretty well. You know, we get to the finals and we eventually uh, are successful and win in Philadelphia against a great Sixers team, you know, Dr. J and and Maurice Cheeks. And so uh, we're very proud of that win. About that season, you started not as the head coach in 79-80, but as an assistant. So when you were saying about knowing how the start of your portrayal would be, right, how could this not be a great story? Can you explain to some people who might not be familiar out there 
What were the circumstances surrounding that season and how you found yourself in the main chair on the sidelines of the forum? I, I go out to the Lakers uh, because of Jack McKinney becoming the head coach and he invited me to come out. We had been good friends and coached together. So in a sense, that was a natural fit. Everything gets off to a good start. Jack McKinney is, is following almost exactly the Jack Ramsey model. So he, he has the team cranking and, and we're playing very well. And then on our first day off in like uh, six weeks, he calls me and says, uh, let's play some tennis. And I lived in a condo which had a tennis court. So I said, sure, come on over. And he no-shows. So it wasn't because he was afraid of me. I can tell you that. Uh, he was a better player than me. And this is before cell phones. So it's not like, well, I get on my cell phone and say, hey, Jack, what's going on? Where are you? And I figure he just had to go in the office or do some work. And his wife, Claire, called and said she can't find him. So she started a search. And sure enough, he had a bicycle accident on his way to my condo and was in a hospital literally at that time as an unknown person. Like, you know, they had no identification, severe cuts and bruises and head injury. So uh, it was touch and go for a few days and and took uh, months for Jack to recover. I mean, I can't even imagine being in your position because here's a friend, a mentor of yours who suffers something traumatic. And oh, by the way, you're in the midst of this situation where clearly there's new ownership, revived expectations, number one draft pick for the Lakers. You had prior head coaching experience, not in the NBA, but how did you navigate those circumstances? What did you fall back on? Yeah, that was a tough thing. On one hand, I'm, I'm concerned about Jack's health and, and his, his getting through this problem. I go the next day to practice. We had a game that night and Back then, head coaches had one assistant. So out of default, I'm it. Like It's either me or the trainer. So they kind of decided on me for the game that night. I said, yeah, you can take the team tonight and we'll talk later. We fortunately win at the buzzer. Jamal Wilkes makes one of his classic jump shots that looks like he's going to fall down and it goes in and we win. Had we not won that first game, I probably would be back in Philadelphia the next day. They said, okay, keep the team. We're, we're not sure what Jack McKinney's status is. We're not sure what we want to do. So one game led to two games. To uh, They finally sent me on a road trip, and they said, uh, when you come back, we'll talk. And so they kind of strung it out, and then finally they said, okay, uh, you can be our uh, kind of intern coach uh, indefinitely. So I just stumbled into it, to tell you the truth. Let's talk about Pat Riley, who's played by Adrian Brody, the Academy Award winner, in this HBO series, Winning Time. Riley is the guy who eventually, spoiler alert, replaces you after you were let go by the Lakers. How did he come into the picture? Well, that's an interesting story. I actually went to Jerry Buss and said, I, uh, I would like to bring Pat Riley with me. Now, Riley at the time was the color commentator for the radio and TV. Chick Hearn was the, the head man. And Riley said, yeah, I think I could tr- I could do this. I went to Bus and Bus said no. said, I, I don't think Riley is a good idea. <laughs> Here's another thing I learned about owners that I didn't know. So he said, go on the next trip and we'll come back and talk. Well, 
I came back and I didn't change my mind, but Bus thought I was smart enough to know when the owner says he doesn't think it's a good idea, when you have the next meeting, you agree <laughs> it's not a good idea. So I came back the second time and said, Pat Riley, and he looked at me like, uh, what's your problem? <laughs> so sure enough, uh, Bus and Chick Hearn talk it out and uh, Riley becomes, you know, my assistant. But it, it was not easy to get him. And he had no experience and uh, he, he really stepped in and did a good job for me, though. About Jerry Buss for a moment, the way that he's being portrayed on this series, I think John C. Riley is a fantastic all-time actor. But the character of Buss, yes, total character flaws, no question about it. But I also find myself feeling like he's a very endearing and entertaining narrator for this story. Was he as, at times, I don't know, fly by the seat of his pants? I don't know if that's the best way to describe kind of what we're seeing so far, the way he's being characterized in the show. But he also seemed to have a lot of conviction. And the bottom line was he wanted to win. And I would have to think that in any setting, you have to deal with personality traits and things like that. But if your job is to win and the guy at the top who's got the strings to the purse wants to win too, you can find common ground there and chart a path forward. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Uh, uh, Jerry Buss, the portrayal of him, I think, uh, no, it is a little uh, exaggerated. Like he was a, you know, a happy guy and he he liked to party and do things like that. But he's never going to go to a local liquor store, buy a bottle of uh, whiskey <laughs> and lay on the floor of the of the forum saying, I own this team. Uh, and the other thing about Jerry Buss is and so far it hasn't appeared. He was a very smart guy. He was very clever. He might say, hey, you want to have a drink as he was negotiating a deal. But he was a numbers guy. There was no messing with that. Uh, This was before they had salary caps. And one time we were trying to get, in fact, it was Mitch Kupchak from the the Washington Bullets then. And he was going to be a free agent. And I told Jerry Buss, this is the guy we want. And he said, "Okay, we'll get him. I said, well, you know, this is this is not easy. He said, Paul, I will go to the vault. We will get Mitch Kupchak. <laughs> so, yes, you're right. Uh, when Bus wanted something, money didn't matter. He did not have any self-imposed salary cap. Uh, he wanted to win that much. So, he, in retrospect, looking back, if you can have an owner that will spend the money to get the players that you want, you can't do much better than that. Another thing that I'm admiring about Jerry Buss and the way that he's portrayed in the show is that he seemed to empower people or demographics that were underrepresented, whether it be black players or women in the front office. Did he just seem to see people for what they were, that if you had talent and you could help him, then you're a part of this and there wasn't anything else about it? Well, I don't know if it was quite that simple, but he he wanted to win. And he wanted people around him who would pull that off. So, you know, and, and I would be a prime example. You know, I, I, I stumbled into this job. We were successful. We win the championship. And, you know, Jerry Buss says I'm the best coach in the world and I get a new contract because, you know, we won. 
And then a year and a half later, when we're having some problems, some, some issues, and he doesn't see his, his game plan going as he had projected. So, you know, he fires me. In his mind, I think it's as simple as that. You were great when we were winning. And now that we're struggling, have a good life. No, Paul Westhead's honeymoon did not last with the Lakers 11 games into his third season. He was fired. As the story goes, Magic Johnson didn't like the way Westhead wanted to play, called up Jerry Buss and demanded a trade. And instead, it ended up being Westhead who got the boot. Pat Riley was promoted, and that was the end of that. When we continue with Paul Westhead, we'll talk about the other mile markers on a very memorable career, running and gunning with Hank Gathers and Bo Kimball at Loyola Marymount, and the pursuit of another title, this time in the WNBA. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Brian Seltzer. This is KYW News Radio in depth, and we're talking with Paul Westhead, who's portrayed by the actor Jason Siegel in the new HBO show Winning Time. So in December 1981, someone had to go. It was either Westhead or Magic Johnson. But even though Magic ultimately forced the Lakers' hand, Westhead still has fond memories of his early days with the Hall of Famer. Magic Johnson, number one pick in 79-80. What was it like working with him in that first season? He was terrific. I flew in from Philadelphia, went right to a preseason workout for the, the younger players, and, and Magic's there, and he's going up and down the court, and we take a break, and he comes over, and he puts his arms around me. He says, Coach, welcome. I'm like, wow. So then he ran up and down a little bit more. And after practice, he said, I know I should like you because Chuck Daly told me that you were a good guy. Here's that old Philly connection. You know, Chuck coached at the University of Pennsylvania when I was at LaSalle. We had become friends and, and Daly went to Detroit. So the introduction went very well. And, and Magic was, was exciting as a rookie. And, and the thing that people don't realize about Magic Johnson in his first year he wasn't the passing, ball handling point guard who ran up and down and did behind the back plays. I mean, he did it occasionally. He was a hard working power forward. He went in the lane, in the paint, and got rebounds. He, you know, so Magic was very clever. He endeared himself to our team as a young rookie by his hard work and his gutty rebounding, not his flashy passing and shooting. And then once he established himself, then he then expanded into the magic that we now know. It culminated that season in 79-80 with the championship. I can't even imagine that you would really have much time to come up for air during something like that because you didn't go into that season preparing necessarily for a role that you ultimately had, let alone going on this run. Could you appreciate what was going on, what you accomplished in the moment? Yeah, that's really hard. You, you kind of get a, you know, a, a buzz, like there's a, you know, there's excitement in the air and your, your life has changed. And I have to say to you though, upon reflection, you, you think that if you win one, and it was not easy, but it, it happened that you can win more. Well, my career moved around and 28 years later, with the Phoenix Mercury, the, the on the women's WNBA, I finally win my second championship. So it took 28 years. I would advise anyone who stumbles into winning uh, a championship to, to really relish what you have because uh, you never know when another one's going to come. 
One of the stops, in addition to the Lakers, that you gained a lot of notoriety for was Loyola Marymount. And you certainly brought a Philadelphia flavor there, but the run-and-gun offense is something that defined your tenure with that team. Where did that idea come from? Well, uh, it was simmering, simmering. You know, I, I grew up in, in, in Philadelphia that uh, the wild open game really was not accepted. Uh, if you played in, in Philly uh, in the city and then in any one of the big five schools, it was a very routine, organized, no mistake kind of basketball. Uh, and Jack Ramsey was the head of that. He, he, he wouldn't tolerate turnovers, uh, and yet he wanted his players to be very proficient. I kind of saw the game a little bit different. I thought, you know, let's let's open it up. Uh, I did coach in, in Puerto Rico in the summers. The players would look at me and say, well, why are we passing the ball five times to take a shot under pressure when we can come down and take the first shot and be wide open? <laughs> so I learned from the Puerto Rican style and from a coach – uh, at Old Dominion, a fellow named Sonny Allen, uh, who had a fast break system that I followed. Once I got into the fast break world, I w- would never go back. And at LMU, you know, I found the right mix of players who were willing to run. I had the good fortune to get two Philly guys, uh, Bo Kimball and Hank Gathers uh, from Muriel Dobbins High School, who went to USC and then uh, left and came to me. So with Hank and Bo and a fast break system, we were flying high. It's funny how when I was growing up, and I'm in my mid-30s now, and I grew up in the suburbs in Cheltenham, heard a lot about Hank Gathers, heard a lot about Bo Kimball. But I feel like there's a younger crop coming through as this whole cycle of life things work who don't understand exactly what they were as players. What did you see in Hank Gathers and Bo Kimball? My initial appearance uh, when they finally transferred in is that they you know, had a lot of skill and they had a lot of talent, but they had an unusual hunger for the game. Well, Hank and Bo were double tough. They were relentless. They, this was not to be messed with. So if you wanted to play fast, coach, we're going to play fast and we're going to bring everybody with us. And that's exactly what it took for my running game to, to take off. And kind of interesting when before Hank and Bo came, I was a fast break coach and we were averaging like 90 points a game, which is a lot. When Hank and Bo played their first season, we're averaging 110 points a game. And in their last season, we're averaging 122 points a game. It was just off the charts the way, the two of them with my other guys just bought in and, and, and speed would wear you down. Uh, uh, speed, speed was uh, unstoppable. I think this is yet another case as we look at maybe some through lines in your career and your coaching approach where it's like, what makes a successful coach? Strategies, ideas, I'm sure. But buy-in is also key. If you have Hank Gathers and Bo Kemble buying in, rest of the guys are going to follow. If you have a nucleus with the Lakers buying in, rest of the guys are going to follow. Hey, there's no doubt about that. And, and, and going back to the Lakers in my final season before I got fired, the system that I was trying to evolve, there wasn't a buy-in. 
the pro players, uh, they kind of evaluate where they think it's going. And if it's not going to suit them, uh, they, they go sideways. And once they go sideways, uh, you have a big problem. But with LMU, uh, my players embraced the, the speed game, embraced running. They, they would watch games on TV and say, Coach, you see that game last night? That, it was boring. You know, they wanted to play fast. We did go to Philly one that year and we played St. Joe's, one at the buzzer. Bo Kimball made like a 40-foot jump shot as the game ended and we win that game. He, he said to me afterwards, he said, I saw all this, uh, all those signs up in at, at St. Joe's and they said, we love you, Bo. Well, Bo, we're, you're, our, you're our man. Well, he didn't realize that that was for Jim Bo Boyle, <laughs> the coach at St. Joe's. And he thought it was for him because he was coming back home and he had his, his mom there and everything. But anyway, so he makes that shot. And then two nights later, we play LaSalle with Lionel, the train Simmons. It's a knockdown game at the convention center. And I think we win 121 to 115. And it was just classic fast break basketball. I remember after the game, their coach Speedy Mar said, you know, this wasn't really basketball. This was like street ball. Well, for the opposition, it is street ball. But for us, it was orchestrated. We knew exactly, you know, how we wanted to play the game. I think your stop in the WNBA with the Phoenix Mercury was so cool. There were amazing players on that team. For people who know the league, Diana Taurasi, Cappy Pondexter. What were you hoping to get out of that stop coaching in the WNBA? Well, uh, you know, I had a, over 20 jobs and I got fired in like 14 of them. So to use uh, an expression of an NBA official, I know, uh, why'd you take the job? He would say, well, the kids got to eat, you know, so, you know, I, <laughs> I needed the work. So when I went to Phoenix, I had I had never coached women before. I didn't know what was going on. And uh, Diana Taurasi met me at the airport for the press conference. And we drove together to the press conference. And she said to me, Coach, I just want to say one thing. Treat us like the guys. Don't water down what you do. So if you want us to run, make us run. I, I reflected on that. And I said, OK. I said, I. I I wonder if Magic Johnson would have met me at the airport uh, for a press conference. So I knew something was going on here. And we did run. And in my first year, we ran and we lost. And I said, "Uh uh-oh, the players are going to start going sideways, like in the NBA. But they didn't. So Rossi just looked at me and said, keep pushing us and and we'll get it. Don't, Don't worry. And sure enough, the next year, you know, we win a championship in Detroit against uh, Bill Lambeer's team, which was very good. And uh, the players, again, like Hank and Bo, like Diana Taurasi, and as you mentioned, Cappy Pondexter, they pull it off if they buy in. They'll do it for you. Were there any areas where you felt like, man, if if the dudes just acted like the way the women are acting, man, look what we could accomplish. Was there anything ever like that that you encountered? Yeah, there's, there's no doubt. I've had some teams, you know, I coached Chicago Bulls, for example, that, you know, I tried to run and, and it didn't work. And after about, oh, pick a number. If you're three and eight in the NBA, you're done. Whatever you say, you, you say blue, they say green. <laughs> they, 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 they've already bailed on you. When I had the women in the WNBA, we had a losing season. 
and they every day worked at it, worked at it, worked at it, worked at it. They, they, they bought in and they stayed that way. So there is a difference. Uh, guys will see that their individual game isn't going well for them in your system and they'll abandon you. And I'm not saying they're wrong, but they will abandon you. They say, well, my career's at stake here and you're not helping me, buddy. The women, they're much more of a group psyche. You know, the team counts more to them. So, yes, that that is a difference. Huh. Do you have any thoughts on why that might be? No, I, I you know, I, you know, I, I, I just go way back. You know, I remember John Wooden at UCLA said, he thought the best basketball in America were the women's teams. He thought the, the, the girls in high school and in college played the team game. You know, of course, he won 10 NCAA championships, so he knows what winning's like. But he was always admiring how the women seemed to uh, have a more of a team flow to things that help each other out. And, and if you won, you won because your team played very well. In men's basketball, Sometimes you win because, you know, LeBron gets 50. It's not really necessarily a team game. It helps to have a team game, but a lot of times in, in the pro game, in the NBA, individuals can carry you. Sure. The will of one can absolutely make a difference. I feel like there's been progress made in recent years, not quite yet where it needs to be, in terms of leveling the playing field between men's sports and women's sports. Did coaching the WNBA and then later at Oregon, did that enhance, change your perspective on inequities between men's and women's sports and athletes? The, the WNBA is probably uh, one of the most underrated uh, leagues in the world because, you know, they have great players, they work hard, they're well-organized, and yet they, you know, they don't go off the charts in, in you know, TV coverage. And so I think it's, it's unfair, but man, are they good. Uh, I could tell you a million Diana Taurasi stories, but one, we're, we're on a road where we lost a couple games. We come home, going to play at home the next day. I said, all right, girls, uh, let's take a day off and rest and we'll come back tomorrow. I'm in my office and Taurasi says, well, you go on home coach. Uh, you, you need the rest, but like, I'm going to work out before I left. When she walked out on the court, 11 other players walked out on the court and they had their own practice workout. Like they, they weren't going to take a day off. <laughs> that, that was not in their scheme. That's what's misunderstood, uh, at least in basketball, and I suspect in all the other sports. Women athletes are as dedicated as the best of the men. Uh, they're right there. They they do not mess around, and they want to show their skills and, and show their love of the game. On the surface, there's a charmed aspect to your career. You won an NBA championship, WNBA title. You've had a sustained career in coaching, but you know you were fired not just once, but multiple Many times. times. Um, Hank Gathers passing away. Basketball is hard. Professional basketball is hard. College basketball is hard. It's a nonstop grind when you're really into sports. Were there ever any moments when you were like, do I continue with this? When you second guessed or questioned what it was that you were doing? Yeah, I mean, you, you always have those moments. Uh, usually uh, they're passing. I mean, you, 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 if every time you lost a tough game, 
and you had the option to walk away, you probably would walk away, you know, because you, you, you really feel hurt and, and, and lost. The beauty of coaching sports is as long as there's another practice the next day and there's another game that can revive you. That's the beauty of, of coaching. You, you always have a chance for another game. It's when the season ends and you're done. That's hard. I mean, the off season sometimes is, is very difficult on coaches, but you have to have some kind of inner strength and spirit to convey to your players like, hey, we just lost, but it's going to be better. And you have to kind of trigger that. So I was always able to do that. It's when they say to you, well, coach, uh, there's a train leaving tomorrow. Be under it. <laughs> You know, so when you get fired, that's never fun. This area was such a part of your roots and forming who you became. Did you feel that you took a part of Philadelphia with you wherever you went? Was there a part of your Philadelphia roots and upbringing that manifested itself in how you went about your jobs? Yeah, I have no question. I mean, you're you're always a part of you know where where you come from and how how you grew up, and you know, and I. You know, I grew up in, in, in West Philadelphia, you know, uh, in a row house. So, I, you know, we never had a lot of money. And I, I went to West Catholic High School for boys, 2,600 boys. And you had to fight to, you know, survive there. I went to St. Joe's on a scholarship that Jack Ramsey kind of kindly thought that, you know, I might be pretty good. I was not a star, although I played at Malvern Prep and, and played pretty well there. So... You know, I, I came from a background that it was never easy. I never was a star. I never really uh, had an awful lot. So when I went into my coaching career, I, I tried to stick to the scheme and not not let it break me. But uh, sometimes it's tough. You always have your family to sustain you. You recently celebrated a birthday. At this stage of your life, what's it like to know that there is going to be some part of your story that's maybe canonized might be a little bit too dramatic of a word to use, but hey, this is a big time Hollywood HBO production that a part of your story is now going to be told in that way to a whole new audience, new age range of people who are going to you know, learn about your role in this crazy, memorable story in the history of sports. Yeah, well, uh, I'm like a lot of people, I'm anxious to see how they portray me. <laughs> so we'll, we'll figure out after that happens. But no, yeah, I, I, I'm happy for it. But, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, looking back on it after my birthday the other day, I'm saying I'm happy for players that, that I stayed in contact with. I'm happy for Bo Kimball, who always texts me or gives me a call and says, how you doing? Uh, I'm happy for my Cheltenham High players, the players and their memories. And, and your coaching them is always going to be uh, valuable. I've got to ask you. Your original hometown team, the 76ers, recently made a pretty big trade for a gentleman with a pretty big beard. Will it be enough to put the Sixers over the top, do you think? Yeah, I, I like James Harden. You know, I, I, I never coached him, although I, my, my last NBA job with P.J. Carlissimo was in Oklahoma City. So we had, we had Durant, but I, I followed Harden. I, there's something about him that, that I really like. 
you know, usually the stars like that who want the ball all the time and it's their game and uh, I'm either going to win for you or I'm going to lose for you and get out of my way. They're not really endearing kind of guys, you know, uh, but there's something about Harden that is endearing. I I still don't know how he pulls it off, how he just dribbles the ball and and people get out of his way and he beats them. I know he's clever, but you almost want to say to to the defenders, how did he beat you? But he does. So that that's what attracts me to him. Uh, I'm I'm a James Harden fan, and I hope that he's the perfect player to put this team together and and get to the finals like I played against them in 1980. And once they get to the finals, then they're on their own. Tremendous. Paul Westhead, this is great. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks, Brian. Thank you. You can watch or stream Winning Time on HBO. New episodes come out every Sunday. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Brian Seltzer, and we'll have another episode out soon.